He crept up, slowly, shakily, his shadow leaping and sprawling before him. There were little noises everywhere now, not a stair in the house without its creak. All that part of the house that yawned above him seemed tense, expectant. The little patch of darkness at the top was thick and crawling with unrevealed terrors. Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a haunted house podcast. I'm your ghost host, Ben Casey, and this is my haunted spouse and co-host, Laura. Hello! If you hear any noises in the background of the episode, our producer is a golden retriever, and she decided to loudly nap next to our recording setup. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about Benighted, the 1927 novel by J.B. Priestley. Spoiler warning for Benighted, we managed to avoid spoiling the end, but we definitely talk about pretty much everything up until that point. Benighted is the novel that inspired the 1932 film Old Dark House, which in turn inspired the film House on Haunted Hill, which we covered in episode one. Benighted was initially published in England in 1927, the same year as the subject of our last episode, The Cat and the Canary silent film. It was published in the U.S. one year later, in 1928, under the title The Old Dark House. The introduction in our copy states that this new title, quote, immediately positioned it as a deconstruction or summation of the Old Dark House stories, a popular subgenre at the time. In much the same way, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard would use the title of their film, The Cabin in the Woods, to signal their intentions toward that unofficial subgenre. Old Dark House stories featured groups of eclectic strangers gathering at some secluded house for the reading of a will, say, or stranded there when the bridge washes out in a rainstorm, A modern audience might be most familiar with this genre through... Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a parody of a number of the genre's tropes. A little bit about the author, J.B. Priestley. He was born in Yorkshire in 1894 and enlisted to fight in World War I when he was 20 years old. His novels and plays featured class commentary and were very popular in his time, but it's my understanding that he's less of a household name today. The story begins with Philip Waverton and his wife Margaret, who are on a road trip with Philip's friend, Roger Penderell, when inclement weather forces them to seek shelter in an old, dark house. Philip and Margaret Waverton are a fairly young couple, though presumably no longer newlyweds, as they mention a young daughter and allude to a rift that has grown between them gradually over several years. Margaret feels lonely in their marriage and is frustrated that Philip tends to be a bit of a warrior and lacks self-assurance. Penderell is a bachelor who is a little younger and pretty cynical. He carries a great deal of trauma from fighting in World War I and mentions overtly and through implication that he struggles with depression. When they arrive at the house, they first meet Morgan, a servant who cannot speak. They also meet Horace Femme and Rebecca Femme, 
siblings to Sir Roderick, the master of the house, who is very ill and confined to his bed. Despite the fact that the road has completely flooded, they are at first opposed to the travelers staying in their home for the night, but eventually they agree. Two other travelers show up a little later, seeking shelter as well. Sir William Porterhouse, a middle-aged business magnate, and his companion Miss Gladys Duquesne, a chorus girl. Now the house, surprisingly large to be in such an out-of-the-way place, towered above them. The headlamps shone upon the house, and the door was strongly, dramatically illuminated by their uncouth glare. It was a large door, stout enough for a little fortress, and three broad steps led up to it. Somehow, it looked as if it were closed forever. Everything there was magnificently done, but had been wickedly neglected, and was now in a ruinous state of decay. It was a sight that went to his heart. He thought he understood now why the house had depressed him at first, where he had picked up the idea of an evil desolation. For everything told the same sad tale, and no doubt downstairs he had quite unconsciously taken in all this. Treated with anything like decency, this house would have been a joy, a miracle. Now they stood there holding a candle to a fallen empire of craftsmanship. Even though this house is shelter from a ridiculous rainstorm, it is clear that it is excessively uncomfortable and uninviting. The house is very cold. They settle down to dinner looking forward to warm food. But then even dinner is just cold meat. At one point, the power goes out, so it's dark, too. Throughout the night, they have a series of awkward and disturbing interactions with the Femmes and their servant, Morgan, who gets drunk and tries to assault Margaret. Terror and suspense build as the Wavertons are forced deeper into the house and stumble upon its secrets. They learn that there is a fourth Femme sibling, Saul, who is a, quote, madman. He is kept locked in his room because he is dangerous and has previously attempted to burn the house down. As the night progresses, Pinderell and Gladys realize that they are quite similar in their feelings of depression and experiences of disenfranchisement. Their understanding of one another on this deeper level inspires them to plan to be married. Eventually, the travelers discover that Morgan, in his intoxication, has unlocked Saul's door. They are forced to defend themselves against attacks from Morgan and Saul, while Rebecca and Horace Femme hide in their rooms. So if you couldn't tell from the synopsis, this isn't exactly your typical haunted house story. However, this story, as well as The Cat and the Canary from last episode, form a very important basis in the form of the old dark house trope, because at least early on you don't have the haunted house of the mid-1900s without the old dark house that preceded those stories. You could say that they build the foundation of the old dark house. Yes. I don't know anything about building houses. Is that right? (laughs) I mean, that sounds good to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, because in this book, I feel like we start seeing a lot more of those tropes because Cat and the Canary kind of sat more in that slightly more in the murder mystery realm without really dipping into a haunted house story. There's some implications, but I felt like at any point in this story, certain elements could have been replaced with ghosts and 
it would have had all the trappings to be a haunted house. And obviously there's always the argument to be made that the house is haunted in other ways that aren't necessarily ghosts. Right. That's more psychological than supernatural. I think my thesis with haunted houses in general is that it blurs the line between supernatural and psychological phenomena. Yeah. And I think we kind of see this one start to push up against that line because it's implied the Sir Roderick mentions something along the lines of like a madness having fallen upon the house and that a number of the family members before Saul succumbed to it. And and then at the end, Margaret and the other characters in their own way reference the house having a kind of a madness influence on them, but only while they're present in the house. Yeah, and it's kind of implied that they managed to escape that by making it through the night, and they avoided being drawn into the madness. Mm-hmm. It's like a dark miasma, is that the word? <laughs> Something like that, I think. A dark energy. Yeah, like a... What was the word that you said? I think I, I think I used the word miasma. Yeah, I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> uh, it's actually a word from like back when there was the miasma theory of... Of disease. Disease. Okay, that's so what I was like thinking. So it's like bad air. Yeah, it's bad air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a dark miasma has settled upon the house. I agree that it feels like at any time there could be spirits or supernatural happenings... I also feel like a cousin to that would be that these people turn out to actually be monsters mm. because they're like two steps away from being monsters. I, f- I feel like we're supposed to see the residents of the house as monstrous. And yeah. so you just add a little extra element of fantasy and they move from being monstrous people to vampires or werewolves or cannibals or whatever yeah well and it even leaves it kind of early on leaves you wondering like what exactly their deal is right because horace because horace is described as i think they describe him as like almost being a skeleton like Mm -hmm. a walking skeleton because he's so seemingly frail and pale and bony yeah, it makes me think of the larger-than-life characters that we see in the Adams Family. Yeah, absolutely. Though I will say, I think uh, Rebecca Femme might not find herself uh, particularly... She might not get along so well with the Adams Family, <laughs> seeing as <laughs> how she right. barely gets along with her own family or anyone who is not... Of her same theological mindset. <laughs> and we don't even have evidence that she gets along with others of her mindset either, do we? Uh, yeah, we really don't. I mean, we never see her around anyone. Yeah, she kind of <laughs> seems like one of those people who just hates everybody and she's going to come up with a religious reason why. <laughs> but she did like talking to Margaret, so... That's true, but she also seems like she's the kind of person who would talk to a a brick wall if she thought it would listen to her story she's cantankerous yes um but yeah well and even because we get that scene speaking about how these people seem like they could be some form of of monster even like when we go to her room it's like dank 
and smells like wool or like dirty wool. dirty wool and just they're all just a little bit off the book does a really good job of playing with the unknown because the main characters are uncomfortable with the fems the fems are uncomfortable about some unspecified thing and for most of the book, it's not made clear why they're so uncomfortable. Uh, there's little bits where they imply that it's very unfortunate for the guests to be staying there, and that this is not a good place for them to be staying. Horace almost refuses to go to the top floor of the house, and it's unclear why. Uh, they're supposed to go up there to find a lamp when the power goes out. And he makes it clear that he's willing to lie about not finding the lamp if it means he doesn't have to go up there. And this is a grown man. <laughs> and this is his siblings. And this is his, like, his siblings. And it's just, it feels so uncomfortable. And then you almost get a little fake out when they finally meet Sir Roderick, because I had assumed that he was going to be the problem. And then he's the most normal of everybody. <laughs> he's just old and ill. Exactly. Um... Yeah, it just plays really well with that. Everything just being a little off. Even, like, the layout of the house. It's implied that when they think they're about to reach a corner of the house, that they actually find that it goes back further in some direction than they anticipated. Um, yeah, throughout the story, there are comments about being surprised that, oh, there was another room popped away in here. This must have This must shoot out the front of the house that we just didn't notice when we drove up. Yeah, the house has electric lights, but they generate their own electricity, so the lights are always flickering and dimming. Yeah, it all just leads to a very spooky and uncomfortable atmosphere, and it's it's exactly the kind of atmosphere that you get in some of the later old Dark House stories that do involve uh, a ghostly haunting. And I definitely think that this is a great example of when real life can be as creepy or creepier than if it were actual supernatural hauntings. Yeah. Because part of what makes it so uncomfortable is the fact that it's pretty relatable. Like, we could see ourselves in the situation, maybe not with all the 1920s specific <laughs> issues that they ran into, like having to light a match in order to see the <laughs> dashboard of the car because it's not lit. <laughs> Uh-huh. But um, Priestley does a great job of, with very little effort, cueing you into certain universal feelings and experiences that we have while traveling, while being around people but still feeling lonely, feelings of existential depression, yeah, feelings of fear and social discomfort. I think the unsettling nature of not knowing your hosts. I think the reason that that he's able to evoke such a feeling of discomfort and terror is because the experiences are relatable or adjacently relatable enough that we could feel those things. Because if they were totally foreign to us, if it was a totally different world, I don't think it would feel as scary. Yeah. I agree. Like a story, if this were taking place in like a fantasy setting or even in some nondescript, technically in the real world, but we have no point of reference for that grounds it, 
this just feels so relatable. And I think part of it is because so much of the story is from the characters' perspectives. We're always getting their thoughts as they experience these things. And he writes them so relatable because they're always having these thoughts that we as the reader have had at some point or another or could see ourselves having in that moment. Like, if you were to remove just a few of the a few of the references that very clearly indicate that this was written by someone in the 20s, you could convince me that this book was written today. Mm-hmm. Because when I got to the first description of Pinderell's depression, I was like, oh, I know exactly what they're describing here. Mm-hmm. Like, this is exactly the way it feels. And it's interesting because so much, I think what I'm getting at is this book centers around the human experience of the story. And I think that's what makes it so relatable is because it always comes back to these fairly universal, like I don't want to necessarily say completely universal because I know from culture to culture experiences are going to be different, but at least for for me as a reader, it is so wholly relatable. Even... Sir William, the business magnate, has just these very human moments of self-doubt, of being in a position of power but fearing losing it, and so doing things he is ashamed of because he fears losing his position and things like that, and they're just all so human and relatable and maybe that's a little bit why the films are so uncomfortable because whereas the main characters have all these human relatable moments it's always in juxtaposition to their relationship with their hosts Mm -hmm. i always want to humanize all of the characters and stories this is a problem that i have (laughs) I'm not sure if it's a bug or a feature, but this is a thing that I do when I consume stories and movies. So my read of that is that the femmes do have all of these relatable characteristics, but because they have cut themselves off from society, hidden away, and repressed everything, they have lost touch with the ability to relate to other people. Mm. Where I find it rather impressive that these strangers, these essentially strangers to one another, the five protagonists, are able to come together and because they're sharing this odd one-night experience are able to be really open and Mm. honest about even the things that they're ashamed of. That feels like that would be something inaccessible to the femmes because of so many years of pushing it down instead of just letting it out and being honest with themselves and accepting yeah. how they feel. Well, because going off of that, even the ending is juxtaposed with the films because Horace and Rebecca lock themselves away in rooms while the climax is happening. 
Whereas at that same time, we see Margaret and Gladys coming to an understanding because they, or at least Margaret, really doesn't like Gladys from the start. She makes a initial judgment about Gladys and just kind of runs with it. Which then causes Gladys to not like her because she could tell that Margaret doesn't like her, so she doesn't like her back. Exactly. Um, And so, but then by the end, they've come to understand each other because they've been open with each other through this experience. Similarly, Margaret realizes why she doesn't like Pinderell because she realizes that he's always open about his feelings and um, to the point that it sometimes makes people who aren't used to being open feel uncomfortable yeah well and she even talks about because it brings out similar feelings in her husband who also fought yeah who i believe was also in the war and so even there there's this interesting thing where like they both had these same experiences they're probably both feeling very similar things and she realizes that she hasn't liked when that comes out in her husband and so by the end of the book she and her husband are even having this reconnection um and all the while the fems lock themselves away even further than they were before naming and recognizing your feelings can be such an important part for a lot of people in getting out of cycles of stagnation and repression. And we see that helping the five protagonists move forward in their own stuff and their own relationships. That makes it stand out even more that the femmes are so stuck in getting out of cycles of rumination or psychological stagnation. When you mentioned that this novel really centers on the human experience that also stood out to me as maybe what makes this different from the turn of the screw other than the fact that they're what 30 years apart yeah of course it seems to imply the human experience without really focusing on it yeah i think that's right well especially because the turn of the screw so heavily relies on implication and I don't know, the governess doesn't feel particularly relatable. No, she doesn't. She she still feels like a stand-in. Yeah. Or she could be anyone. You know, she's she there, feel real. Yeah. She's there because the story needs someone to be scared. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and to tell the story. And to tell the story. Whereas Benighted is all about why they're scared and about their personal experiences, I think. I wonder if it's a little bit of a Victorian England versus a post-war England thing where we're seeing a little more personal storytelling. And the storytelling is this. I was going to say that the story centers on more middle class people. Mm. But then I'm remembering the governess wouldn't exactly have been like she's not the lowest status, but she's not the highest either. Yeah. So maybe she is about equivalent to some of the characters that we see. Mm. And it may be, too, that that extra 30 years makes a difference in how much we, as readers in 2022, can hmm. relate to yeah. the story or can understand the implications and read between the lines. I read that Henry James often wrote about young women who were 
disenfranchised or had power used against them, that this Mm -hmm. was actually something that came up in several of his works. And so I don't know if this is the right terminology to use. So maybe that was in its own way progressive, I suppose. And maybe it just goes to show how far English literature (laughs) had come from the turn of the screw in 1898 to Benighted in 1927, that it feels like these characters are just so much more relatable, especially women in two books written by men. Yeah. And I would be interested to know what the historical impact of the war was on that, because obviously it changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we're looking at a pre-war, post-war difference, or if it's just the forward march of time that resulted in this difference. Because I, I see what you mean, because I feel like for us as modern readers, some of the difference is in a lot of the things that are outright stated by characters in mm-hmm. Benighted would have been buried under three layers of implication in Turn of the Screw. Right, which might just not be understandable to us as Americans in 2022. Yeah. Personally, I think it's for the better that that's more openly discussed because I don't know that it was necessarily a good thing that things like that had to be buried three layers deep. Oh, I thought repression was a healthy thing that worked for everybody. I thought that's why Victorians are so well adjusted. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. The Victorian era known for its well adjusted people. (laughs) So I think the old dark house trope is really important for our conversations. I went into this project with a strong belief that whenever there is a haunted house in literature or film, that haunted house represents somebody's psyche. In literature and in psychology, both houses are used to represent someone's mind as a metaphor for someone's mind. For example, You have the differences in what they present on their exterior versus what the inside of the house is like. Maybe you know someone who tends to keep their exterior looking pristine, but inside they can't take care of themselves. So that would be, you know, the inside of the house is not being maintained, isn't being cleaned, while the outside is constantly power washed. You have the symbolism of having different rooms in the house that... Maybe someone only ever sees the foyer. They're never invited upstairs into more of the private rooms. You have skeletons in the closet. You have basements that nobody wants to go into because there is something scary under there. You have dark corners and spaces where people can feel comfortable to take their coat off, so to speak, and show more of who they really are. With the old dark house especially, you have people coming in from a storm, hoping to find comfort, a warm meal, a nice fire to warm themselves by in the fireplace. But what they find is kind of the opposite, because a house can be something that is so warm and comforting and safe. That is what humans often want their homes to be, and yet 
when you go into a home that is strange to you or where you are unwelcome, the feeling of loneliness or threat that you feel is greater than if you hadn't come into a house at all because of the juxtaposition between what we think of as a house being and what you are actually experiencing in this house. Going off of something you were saying in there about the rooms in a house and sort of compartmentalizing and things like that, in this house, we kind of see the house representing not necessarily the psyche of an individual character, but of the family as a whole. And it's even been compartmentalized by the family because we see Sir Roderick, who is ailing and is kind of presented as the last true master of the house and of the family. And he's kind of locked away on this upper floor. And then Saul, who represents this dangerous, the quote-unquote madness that has fallen upon the family, they lock him away in his own space. And they just put these off to the side Horace and Rebecca lock themselves in their own rooms and they just leave everything to stagnate and the house reflects that. And it's so cold and lonely because everyone just keeps putting themselves in their own room and there's no warmth or sense of community. Yeah. Or family. Or family. Whereas we have strangers who come in from the night and leave a family of sorts. Yeah, that's beautiful, Ben. So yeah, I I think that's really interesting what you're saying about the old dark house kind of establishing this metaphor for the mind and the psyche. And in this book, we see that play out. Mm -hmm. In addition to establishing the house as a metaphor for the psyche, I think we also see in this book establishing, and this might predate the book, but this feels like a very concrete example of something we'll see later in other ghost stories, other monster stories, other horror stories, and that's this juxtaposition of the metaphorical living and the metaphorical dead. Some cases it's a literal living and a literal dead, um, But we see the living as moving forward, as changing, as... Growing and evolving, or has the capacity to, has life to them. Yeah, as putting words to their traumas and their emotions so that they can move forward from them. Uh, To go back to something that uh, we talked about earlier... um, And the dead as stagnant, as frozen in time. Um, In this case, it's a a metaphorical, but it might be ghosts. It might be vampires. We see it a lot with vampires. Mm -hmm. This idea of they're stuck in the 1800s in this modern day world or things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Because they can't die or age. Exactly. Or with your pretty standard haunted house ghost, you have somebody who has some unresolved situation that has to be resolved so they can, quote, move on to the next realm. Yeah. 
And so, even though we don't see ghosts, and this isn't haunted in that way, it's the exact same metaphor that we'll see in later stories. I think that's such a juicy metaphor that there's so much you can kind of dig into with that. At the same time, I think that a natural effect of that is to other the people who live in the house. In the case of Benighted, these are still people. Now, we know that Priestley was known for social commentary, so maybe to him, wealthy people are not people. <laughs> but it really feels like the femmes are the monsters in the house. I think he does acknowledge their humanity in a lot of different subtle ways, but I think that also needs to be a part of the conversation about them as well. Mm. As a modern reader, it stood out to me that a lot of the ways that it's made clear that these people are monstrous is through physical descriptions of their bodies. Mm. The whole deal with Sir Roderick is that he's scary because he's sick and old. Which, you know, if we're all lucky, we get to be sick and old. Yeah. Instead of dying young and healthy (laughs) in an accident. Um, He uses other signifiers of physique and body type to other the femmes and Morgan. Yeah. Yeah, the way they describe Morgan is kind of supposed to clue you into him being violent just by describing him as being large and, I think, hunched. It's maybe a little cheap for it to use those physical cues as a shortcut for trying to tell you something about the character, because that's not how that works. (laughs) I mean, if the Hunchback of Notre Dame taught us anything. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that quite so much, that... Even as much as some other stories, it doesn't even have quite as much sympathy for, quote-unquote, the monsters. Though I wonder, because I I got less of a vibe that in the story that we were supposed to think of Sir Roderick as a monster. I felt like it was a little more sympathetic for his situation and his condition. But I might have missed some things that maybe implied that we were supposed to be scared of how he was, or him as a whole. Well, he's built up before we meet him to be something scary because you even said that like it kind of makes it seem like he's going to be the big bad Mm. and then we meet him and it turns out that he's actually just something to tell us about the big bad yeah um well because that's then just subverting our expectation yeah and i mean that might be part of the point i kind of feel like i'm coming into seeing a movie halfway through In terms of um, the fact that this is already a parody or a commentary on other things that I don't know about. Um, So I'm not sure what the quote-unquote author's intent was. Hmm. Um, So you might be right that this is more sympathetic than maybe we would have seen before to at least Sir Roderick. And so another way I guess you could look at it is maybe it is the femmes that are building him up to be for us to have that expectation that is then subverted yeah that could be and i will say if there is anything it's not great that his age and lack of health are the metaphor for 
the fall of the Fim family. Uh, I love that alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> um, so whereas maybe it doesn't necessarily paint him as a monster because of his ailing health, he is kind of held up as like this metaphor for their demise. And that's maybe not fair to someone who has made it and lived that long and is now ailing. Maybe the characters can be sympathetic to Sir Roderick's situation while still othering him, though. Because mm. I just feel like none of the femmes get the same treatment of common humanity that the rest of the characters do. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed this book, but I, I think it's fun <laughs> and uh no really though um i think that it's a good idea to pull at these threads sometimes even if it does become a little devil's advocate e yeah um just to challenge um these other pieces of it though and yeah that kind of stood out to me i'm still kind of figuring out how i think and feel about this i'm still i'm still exploring where this might go, so I don't really have a final thesis at this point. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point, that the fems end up existing solely for the main characters to be juxtaposed against. Like, they don't get their own opportunity to... I mean, I guess the story kind of presents them with opportunities, but they turn them down. But, like, especially Sir Roderick, it kind of feels like he's just there for the main characters to, like, pity and receive exposition from i think it definitely undercuts itself a little bit with it generally does pretty well i feel like with margaret and gladys with them being pretty major characters who aren't sidelined for being women and there's really nothing about like them needing to be like in a particular place or anything like that like for the most part, I mean, it definitely shows some of its 1927-ness, but, like, for the most part, they're just as important and held in just as important of a place in the story as the men. Mm -hmm. I agree. But that's undercut a little when one of the features of Miss Femme is, like, her size and, and weight mm -hmm. being almost played a little bit humorously against how Twiggy... Mr. Femme Horace mm -hmm. is. This is getting into a territory that I know less <laughs> and less about, but I, I do feel like physique has been a part of theatrical comedy for a long time, mm. which does not mean it's necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if it comes from that history. That's a really good point, especially knowing he's a playwright. Mm -hmm. It would have come very naturally for him to do that with that kind of character. And I think maybe this goes back to with the stage, a way to quickly communicate information about a character is to use these caricatures and tropes that we're familiar with. Yeah. Which isn't great when it comes to stereotyping people, though. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's a really good point. And it doesn't necessarily give it a pass for doing that, but sometimes it helps to understand where that comes from, that it has a problematically established history <laughs> in storytelling and we know in greater culture as well there are a lot of assumptions that we make about people based on their physique even if it comes down to 
this person is tall, therefore they must be a good leader and or they're bigger than me, so I'm going to respect them extra. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like Saul, the, quote, madman, I would have loved to get a lot more about him, too, Hmm. because he's kind of painted as this character that we should be afraid of because of previous actions, as well as because he is dangerous and presumably can't be reasoned with because he is mad. Given that the whole story is about how there is a madness in this house, I would have wanted to know more about Saul to get more details on if it's a scary history or what the quality, so to speak, of his madness is for the sake of storytelling to add depth and Mm. flavor, for, for lack of a better word, and also to get to know the character more. I liked that at the end, he is humanized a little bit. A character mentions that he saw that he has playing cards and surmised that he must be playing solitaire while he's locked in this room alone because he gets bored. And I thought that was really humanizing, and it seemed like the character found that to be humanizing as well. But that would have been a lot more powerful if we had gotten to know this character more, I think. Although I guess on the other hand, maybe... It is powerful because we saw him one-dimensionally as a monster, and then only at the end do we see him as human. Yeah, because specifically during that time when they when they talk about finding the pack of cards, it's the sun is starting to rise, mm-hmm. and it makes numerous references to the house kind of taking on a new appearance as the sun rises. <clears throat> the characters taking on a new state, um, the darkness of the night kind of beginning to wash away from everyone. And so there maybe is something to be said about in this moment, they're realizing like, oh, this was a dude with his own stuff. And yeah, played cards like that. It took me a second to like realize what that was supposed to imply. And then like, once I realized that, that was like, oh, Oh, <laughs> though I, I do agree that I th- I think we could have gotten a little bit more either about him or at least about the quote unquote madness, because when you were talking earlier and then you ended up saying the word as well, like my thought was like, what's the flavor of this madness? <laughs> Is this like a something tragic happened to the family and some of them just broke under the weight of that thing? Or is this like... This family just has a history of something psychological that has been passed through them. Like, what? Like, are we talking a psychopath or are we talking schizophrenia? Yeah. Even if we're not using those terms in 1927, those phenomena still existed and they would have had some way to describe them. Yeah. That would be consistent with what might be somewhat recognizable today. Definitely. And I feel like that's something where in later stories, we start to see that explored a little more, where it's not just madness for madness sake. Like later on in 
Haunting of Hill House and The Shining, we start to see the process of the madness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes a little more central. Whereas here, it's a little more of they just needed something scary to yeah. put in there. And maybe that's my issue with it. <laughs> this is an issue I have with a lot of things is if you're going to use certain sensitive topics, do it in a way that is meaningful and isn't just as a plot device. Do it Mm. in a way that explores or says something, makes some kind of a statement or gives nuance to this issue. Mm. Don't just throw in a real thing that people struggle with as a big bad. Yeah. Well, and especially because he's already demonstrated for us in this book that he has some understanding of what is likely depression and PTSD. I mean, you know, it's always hard looking back, but like it seems to be characters who are suffering from depression and PTSD. So he's shown that he understands some aspects of that, at least. And it would have been nice to see him extend the same care toward Saul's character that he does toward Pinderell and Gladys. I guess, again, if you wanted to, you could read it and blame it on the characters. Mm. And maybe they just didn't see that. Yeah. Because he does, like you just said, he handles the other uh, mental illnesses with nuance. So if we want (laughs) to give a little benefit of the doubt, maybe this is a commentary on the fact that if Saul had been surrounded by more empathy and more support that he wouldn't just be written off as a madman, but instead he would be a fully fleshed out character who was better understood by the people around him. Yeah. And I feel like that's the point that we're, we're always going to come back to with this is that especially when we're far enough removed from the original, the time of the original work and the original author, it's going to be hard to say where the social commentary ends and... I mean, I guess that's what's the great thing about literature, though, is you can interpret and reinterpret and keep going until you kind of come to so many different ways of viewing the work. And I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I like that we can come at this story that we absolutely loved <laughs> and find some potential flaws, but then also find why they might not have been flaws, all depending on how you approach it and and what your own personal context is that you come in with too. yeah yeah and that's kind of the story of the haunted house a little bit too is it depends upon your personal context that you bring into it mm-hmm. and your psychological weaknesses uh-huh. that the house tries <laughs> to play on exactly so we've all got them mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do some ratings on a scale of one to five how spooky is benighted okay (laughs) kind of torn between a four and a five i think i'm gonna go with four okay because somehow it was still cozy i don't know like Mm. cozy like an agatha christie is cozy Uh uh-huh maybe the time period is still different enough that it's not quite as easy for my mind to wander into imagining this happening to me Mm. but something about it still felt like i can read this before bed Mm. without needing a palate cleanser ah i see what you mean Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And reading it really made me want to grab a glass of wine or a cup of cocoa <laughs> and like wrap myself up in a blanket next to the fireplace. Mm. I'm also torn because a part of me wants to be a little bit contrarian. I, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and just for the sake of it, be contrarian and say five for the same reasons. That coziness can almost make it a little bit spookier on an extra level where it's like, yeah, maybe I don't necessarily lie awake at night thinking about what I just read because it was so spooky. But there is something a little spooky about how cozy it feels because the book goes out of its way to make it clear how many uncomfortable moments there are staying in this house. And yet even the main characters still feel a little cozy at times. And so for me to feel cozy reading it, knowing that it's still so unsettling at times, I think is a little extra spooky. That sense of calm, despite this being, like, yeah. It's like when dystopian fiction that is a little too close to home is sometimes, like, kind of fun or makes you laugh. Then you're like, oh no, this made me laugh. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I think there's something to be said for the way the book draws you in with that coziness and then kind of hits you with the creepy. On a scale of one to five, how haunted is Benighted? Hmm. I'm between a one and a two. Because I think, as with so many things, you can always make the argument that, oh, they are haunted by thing like by concept x and so i'm always torn over how much to give to that because i think you could argue that almost anything is haunted at that point (laughs) so i'm always a little torn because i think it is fair to say that like that that is a form of haunting to be haunted by something conceptually but at the same time we have to draw the line somewhere in order to have a worthwhile rating system if you could even call this a worthwhile rating system (laughs) the jury's out (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i will give this one a two because i think it's close enough to being a haunting in the sense that there are just a few things that you could replace and you would have a your standard ghostly haunting Mm mm-hmm So I'm willing to give this one a little bit of extra credit for being so close to being that kind of haunting. And it does have the conceptual haunting of this house is haunted by a madness and haunted by the femme, the modern femme family, if you could even call them modern, but like the current femme family that lives there with their flim flammery. (laughs) (laughs) The femme family with their flim flammery. I don't even know if that's the right use of the term flim flam, but... That's all I've got. Um, So yeah, two. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also going to give it a two for hauntedness because we know of several people who have died in the house in ways that would traditionally invite them to stick around as ghosts. And so at least by the end of the book, I'm going to say it's a little haunted And whether or not they do stick around as ghosts, the remaining people will probably feel haunted by their presence. Okay. I'm going to give it a two. Yeah. 
I like it. I kind of forgot about that, that there have been some deaths as well that are kind of keeping in line with that haunted house story. Okay. On a scale of one to five, how spousy is Benighted? I'll give it a three because there's a reasonable mention of spouses. Obviously, you've got Philip and Margaret. And in fact, it's not really central to the plot, but there's kind of a subplot involving their relationship as a married couple. A lot of it is kind of through implications in the way they think about things, and sometimes they're they're thinking about where their relationship's at and where it's going and things like that. Um, so that kind of carries on as a side plot. We've got only a little bit of a mention of Sir William's wife, I believe, passed away pretty early into their relationship, but there's kind of some implication that that probably impacted him in some way. Um, and then you've got Pinderell and Gladys, who hit it off pretty well, and um, toward the end of the book, it seems like they might be on track for a relationship of some sort. And so, well, he's going to propose to her. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the plan is that, like, <laughs> that for him to propose and for them to go find a, uh, a little, a little apartment together. Um, so I think it's a reasonable enough, like it's, it's not the kind of story where a marriage or a spousal unit is central to the story, but I think enough of the characters have relationships and marriage as a side plot that I think it gets a pretty, a pretty middle of the road score. I was going to give it a five, Oh. but I think I'm going to actually move it down to a four after what you just said, because to me it felt like a significant part of some of the character development was related to their romantic relationships, and we have characters having a romance and getting engaged, like that feels hmm. um, pretty spousy to me, and we have a marriage being repaired. And I, I think that's lovely. Mm. Um, but you're right when it comes to the actual haunted house story, those pieces are kind of um, results of the main story, but they don't really play that much of a role in the main story, I'm going to say. Yeah. So I'm going to bring it down to a four. But yeah, um, spousier than I would have expected going in. Yeah. And yeah, I... Um was definitely surprised. And if we did half rankings, I probably could have given it a little higher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In fact, hearing your argument, I could almost give it a four, but I'm going to stick with a three because that's what I said. First answer goes. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think you probably could have talked me up a little bit even. I feel like so many of the ones we've watched recently, you have your standard five or six people who come into the house uh, to explore it. They're almost always single. And so that even initially when I started the book was like, oh, this is might be a little bit different. So yeah, I think that's interesting, too. Well, that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored Benighted by J.B. Priestley. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five spook review. Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the podcast. So, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, you can suggest a rating category that we will use in an upcoming episode.
If you have any comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening. And remember... Her mind went groping about and at last stumbled back through the night. It seemed different now. Something had vanished from it. That huge background of nightmare. Horror mounting in the dark. All that had gone. They had come running out of the rain, the black night, into this house, clamoring for shelter, and had found here some people like themselves, only twisted, crazed with loneliness, age, some weakness of blood or brain. Their figures came swaying before her, and now for a moment she could look into each face steadily and pitifully. Last night she had been sick, terrified, despairing. Tomorrow, looking back, she might be angry. But just now, she could only be sorry. Sorry.